Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Hey, one more thing. I have been wanting to share my current obsession. Honestly, it's a household obsession because my husband Alex turned me on to Paleo Valley's keto-friendly grass-fed beef sticks earlier this year. Especially when we are on the go, this is the first thing that I grab because protein is a must for keeping me full throughout the day. And they taste amazing with organic spices. My personal favorite is teriyaki and Alex's favorite is jalapeno because he loves a little extra spice. Now, because I know you're going to love them too, Paleo Valley has given me an awesome promo code to share with you so that you can try these amazing beef sticks whenever you need a healthy, protein-rich snack without added sugar or preservatives. So you're going to use promo code Dr. Marisa, D-R-M-A-R-I-Z-A, and get 15% off of your order at paleovalley.com. I'm going to have the link in the show notes for this episode. Try them today for you and your whole family. Have you ever wondered why doctors may have dismissed some of your symptoms or ignored them altogether and sent you away with no true answers? I cannot tell you how many stories from women like yourself I've heard since I started this 12-year journey into women's hormone health. Literally thousands of women have walked out of doctors' offices feeling unsupported, unheard, and unvalidated today. I myself have dealt with the dismissal of symptoms and have been given inadequate recommendations. Now, it was because of a doctor's lazy and inadequate recommendations 12 years ago that led me down this path, that led me here to you. So in some ways, I am eternally grateful because I found my purpose and my path and my mission, and I love the work that I do in the world. But in other ways, I feel a bit outraged that it's 2021 and we still need to be having this very conversation because let me tell you, little has changed in the last several decades. Now, it was 12 years ago that I went to get my hormone lab panel done, and after getting my lab results, it was clear that my stress hormones were in the dumpster and my reproductive hormones were completely deregulated. But when I was given a solution, it came in the form of two prescriptions, literally birth control and Xanax. It felt like such a dismissal. And I remember looking down at these prescriptions and knew deep down in my gut, right, that, that gut intuition that they were not going to get me well. And I knew that it was time to dig into the research and figure out how to heal my hormones and finally get to the root cause of what was going on with me and millions of other women. Luckily, I had been a biochemist for five plus years. I was a bulldog. I'm still a bulldog for research. And I just knew there had to be another solution, a real solution, a root cause solution. And my goodness, things have changed in the last 12 years because millions of women are healing their bodies naturally by getting to the root cause of what is going on. It's literally the premise of my newest book, The Essential Oils Menopause Solution, is how do we actually address the root cause of what is happening? Now, unfortunately, my story is not unique, and that's why I'm highlighting 10 ways that women are being gaslit in the medical industry today. Now, in the book, Doing Harm by Maya Dusenberry, it explores the deep systemic problems that underlies women's experiences of feeling dismissed by the medical system. Now, I bring this up because she had done so much journalistic research when it came to figuring out how modern medicine is dismissing women and gaslighting women. Now, I had her on the show over a year ago, but I want to spend some time and highlight some of the things that she discovered. 
Women have been discharged from the emergency room mid-heart attack with a prescription of anti-anxiety medications, while others with autoimmune diseases like Hajimoto's and lupus have been labeled chronic complainers for years before finally being properly diagnosed. Now, women with endometriosis have been told that they are just overreacting to normal menstrual cramps, while others have been told that their illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia are psychosomatic, and they have yet to be fully accepted as real diseases by the whole profession. So these women are just sent back home. The research community has neglected conditions that disproportionately affect women and pay little attention to the biological differences between the sexes in everything from drug metabolism to disease factor risks even symptoms of a heart attack. Meanwhile, a long history of viewing women as especially prone to hysteria reverberates in the present day, leaving women battling against a stereotype that they are hypochondriacs whose ailments are likely to be all in their heads. So what does this all mean? Well, number one, we are not making it up in our heads and a lot needs to change in our healthcare system before we consistently receive the care that we deserve. So I want to spend some time and just articulate one of the biggest issues regarding symptoms that women present with today. Many women's health problems are involved in subjective symptoms like pain or fatigue. Women are three times more likely to develop rheumatoid arthritis, four times more likely to develop chronic fatigue syndrome. Goodness knows I've had chronic fatigue. I've got an autoimmune condition. This is so true. It's so true for me. I'm living this three times as likely to develop an autoimmune condition, which often comes with debilitating pain. What's more, these differences are seen worldwide, regardless of a country's overall health outcomes, and the differences start to emerge in childhood, especially as girls are teenagers, where we really dismiss them. A great case in point is endometriosis. A lot of endometriosis starts in our teens, 14, 15, 16, 17, but we dismiss, 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 put girls on birth control. And then finally, about 10 years later, when they're in their mid to late 20s, when things have really gotten bad, we were able to finally diagnose that. I mean, that's just a great example of what we see play out over and over and over again when it comes to endometriosis. Now, the problem with subjective symptoms is twofold. First, They do not show up on labs, right? We're talking about pain or fatigue. I know both very well. And second, many doctors have a predisposition to mistrust women entering medical gaslighting. So what exactly is medical gaslighting? As described by health.com, gaslighting happens when one person tries to convince another to second guess their instincts and doubt their perception that something is real. Medical gaslighting happens when healthcare professionals downplay or blow off symptoms you know that you're feeling and instead try to convince you that they're caused by something else or that you're imagining them all together. Hence the hysteria, hence it's all in your head, hence the constant prescription of anti-anxiety medications. So I'm gonna share some examples of medical gaslighting because I have a feeling that you've experienced one or more of these. I know I have as I was creating this list Um, I was like, oh, yep, me, 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 me. I just kept going down the list thinking, oh, yeah, I can put a check mark next to almost all of these. So minimizing debilitating or dangerous symptoms. So something like saying your pain can't be that bad or, you know, menstrual cramps are supposed to be painful. Just basically dismissing those those what we called earlier the subjective symptoms, right? Those pain symptoms. Number two, blaming symptoms on mental illness that it's all in your head, that it must be psychosomatic. Number three, assuming a diagnosis is based on sex, race, identity, gender, ethnicity, weight, all of it. 
So one of the things we hear so often when women hear is just lose weight, exercise more, your symptoms will disappear. And we know that as we've dove into the metabolic issue, that hormones are at play here, that it's not a calorie in versus calorie out and putting the onus back on the person because it's your weight issue or you've got to lose weight is not solving the problem at all. It is, again, a full way of gaslighting and dismissing you as a patient. Number four, refusing to order important tests or imaging work. I cannot tell you how often this happens, especially when it comes to labs, especially when it comes to hormone labs. And the reason why doctors aren't ordering hormone labs is they can't interpret them. They don't know what they mean. That's the reason. They're just like, eh, no, I know you don't have XYZ. You don't need the MRI. You don't need important tests. It's not going to tell us anything anyway, right? I can't tell you what happened to my mom when she was put on her synthetic estrogen patch. And I talk about that story in my book. They wouldn't look at her labs because it wasn't important enough. She was already estrogen dominant and they shoved a synthetic estrogen Premarin patch on her and oh my gosh, things just got so much worse so quickly, right? If they had looked at the labs, that never would have been recommended. Number five, refusing to discuss the health issue with the patient berating patients for trying to self-diagnose, you know, so basically blaming you for going to Google or going to wherever, you know, Dr. Google, and basically they're the doctor. It's that power struggle, that power dynamic, right, that I have felt more than once. Number six, writing off the symptoms and offering a quick pill solution. Birth control pill, can I say? I mean, that's what was happening with me, right? And it's just so, so quick to just miss and just give you a pill and send you out the door. And that just outrages me to no end. Straight out saying everything is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Number eight, dismissing physical symptoms as a result of stress, anxiety, or some other mental or emotional issue, or the tendency to attribute symptoms that aren't readily explained to the patients. They blame it on the patient's psychology that disproportionately affects women. Again, it's all in your head. This dynamic leaves women in a catch-22 where they're dismissed if they dramatically describe their symptoms, right? Those subjective symptoms due to hysteria, or they're dismissed because we end up downplaying them. So there's kind of like we're damned if we do or damned if we don't. Now, according to Maya Dunsenberry, medical gaslighting also means that many conditions that primarily affect women like fibromyalgia, endometriosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, PCOS, right? These types of issues are assumed to be psychosomatic. In turn, it means that they are given very little research dollars directed to them and continue to be poorly understood and marginalized. So unless we do the research, unless we're educating the doctors, nothing's going to change. A lot of ways in which we experience gaslighting in the medical industry has a lot to do with the trust gap between practitioner and patient. Those were the 10 that I just shouted off. But I also want you to be looking at the knowledge gap as well with medicine, because less doctors learn about women's conditions, the more likely they are to dismiss them. More often doctors dismiss them, the less they're willing to learn about them. So again, it's that catch 22. And when you look at the history of clinical research, you can clearly see how this knowledge gap emerged for many decades. I'm um, probably since the advent of modern medicine in the 1930s, give or take, women were either completely excluded from or vastly underrepresented in the medical research, and nobody questioned this approach. There were various reasons for given women exclusion. Perhaps the biggest one was that white men were simply considered the norm, and so everything was, and sadly often continues to be today, constructed with them in mind, still today. There was also the fact of women's hormones and reproductive systems, which many researchers saw 
as not overly complicated variable, but also a liability. It's like <laughs> one or the other. They thought both. In fact, the FDA issued a policy in 1977 recommending the exclusion of all women of childbearing age from all clinical research even if they were using contraception or had no intention of having children. Even aside from this policy, researchers generally wanted to steer clear of women because their complex hormone fluctuations added unwanted complications and liability to the studies. So what's so crazy is that we found that a lot of big functional clinical studies in the 1980s were done on thousands of men, no women at all, with no justification beyond the assumption that there weren't many differences between the sexes beyond reproductive organs and that it was fine to extrapolate male results to female populations. There's the sense that women's hormones have made them more heterogeneous group of the subject and that it would be much easier to have an all-male study population. In other words, it's just lazy medicine. We refuse to just look at women because we didn't want to have to, you know, do a little bit more work to figure out what was going on with us. The exclusion of women from clinical research began to get public attention finally after thousands and thousands of research articles. Research was done on drugs, on diagnostic tools, on risk factors. I mean, name it. Almost all of our medicine today is based on male population research. But finally, in the 90s, 1990s, right? I was a teenager then. There were finally congressional hearings to try to get to the bottom of why these taxpayer-funded studies from the NIH excluded half the population. There was public outcry of these revelations and the policy changes were made to include women going forward. However, since there is an estimated lag of about 17 years between research being conducted and it making its way into medical practice, many of these research effects have not made changes bedside. Basically what we've learned in the research hasn't actually made it to the doctor's office. And we feel that because things haven't changed. So given the ways in which we impact women's health and medicine, what is the impact of medical gaslighting on our patients? What's the impact of gaslighting on you? Well, medical gaslighting delays a diagnosis, simply put. So if you have PCOS, it may take five to seven years to get a diagnosis. If you've got endometriosis, it may take up to 10 years to get a diagnosis. If you've got an autoimmune condition, best believe you're gonna get through the runaround before finally someone gives you a diagnosis. The delay then, of course, delays appropriate treatment. It leaves the patient in pain or with other symptoms longer than necessary. It may mean that their health spirals into greater issues, potentially in an irreversible way. The impact of medical gaslighting has also a psychological element. It is traumatic to not be believed that you're in pain, to not be believed that you're exhausted, to not be believed that you are struggling. We go to doctors for help, for care, and for hopefully some empathy and kindness in treating the issue at hand. To be disrespected by the very people who are supposed to put your needs first in a distressing way, like when you're dealing with a major distressing issue, can feel so not only dismissal, but also it just feels like no one cares. It feels like you're not being heard. You feel hopeless is basically what it comes down to. And this leads to a distrust of doctors at times, something that can prevent patients from seeking further help for further issues down the road. So what can you do if you find yourself being gaslit in your next doctor's appointment? Probably the one thing that we got to do, but probably the hardest thing to do is advocate for ourselves. Now, I recognize because I have advocated for myself on many occasions and it is uncomfortable, even as a practitioner, when I'm in the doctor's office with another practitioner, it can feel uncomfortable. 
But luckily, advocacy can take many forms. And I cannot tell you how many times I have stepped up as an advocate for somebody else, especially my family or friends in my sphere. So for example, at your next appointment, you could take a friend or a relative or a partner. This can help in two ways. One, they have another set of eyes and ears, so they will be there if something inappropriate is said, or if symptoms haven't been seen by them, they can emphasize this to the doctor. So my husband and I, if ever I have a really, really big appointment, unfortunately, I wasn't able to have him at any of my pregnancy appointments, but if it's a really, really big appointment, and either him or I, we go through the symptoms, we kind of make a game plan, and then we're able to advocate for each other. So like we have a plan moving forward. Next is keeping a record of symptoms can be very helpful as well as photographs or videos. If something looks wrong, like maybe you have a rash or there's something going on with your skin, this would be a great time to document it and take it to your appointment. Also, if another doctor has commented on the symptoms or made suggestions, take a copy of that clinical letter and mention this to the doctor. What we know to be true is often doctors don't wanna go against the suggestions of a colleague or another doctor. Number four is take note of your appointment. This is true that some doctors don't like this, but as far as I'm aware, there's no rule that you cannot take notes about what's being said in your appointment. Remember, it's your body, you're the CEO of your health, and it is your right and your prerogative. Number five, self-diagnosis is not always the best move moving forward. However, unless you cannot find you know, your primary doctor to look further, I recommend going to either a functional practitioner or going to see someone private or a specialist to get that second opinion. I always recommend getting that second opinion. And yes, do your own due diligence. Do the research. Listen to podcasts like this. Kind of figure out what's going on with you. A lot of when a doctor is taking a health history, they're looking at symptoms. And if you can get clear on what your symptoms are, you're listening to these podcast episodes, it can be really clear what's going on with you, right? That's a big reason why I created this podcast to help provide you with answers to the most common misdiagnosed and dismissed issues that women face today so that you could be like, oh my gosh, aha, that's what's going on with me. Taking that information, pleading a case for what's going on so that you can get the proper testing, diagnostics, all of that to really get the treatment that you deserve. Now, I want to say just a little bit about this show is that I created this podcast with now over 120,000 downloads per month so that you can feel more prepared and more ready to have tough conversations and advocate for yourself and to help give you the tools to start diving in and supporting your body naturally. There's so much that we can do in our own home. There's so much that we can do to help reverse those symptoms because so much of it is driven by those root causes. And I talk about that in my books. I talk about that in the show. I'm not gonna get into that today because it's not what this show is about. But I just want you to know that there is so much that we can do every day to support our overall health and we have the knowledge and power to become the CEOs of our health. I believe that whole, wholeheartedly. And that's exactly what I just wanted to showcase today is just the awareness of what is happening in the medical field still to this day, how to be looking out for it. Because at the end of the day, what I don't wanna have happen is that your treatment is delayed or that your diagnosis is delayed any further, any longer. And hopefully in these 300 plus episodes, you are getting the answers that you're looking for so that you can move forward and be able to support your body in a really incredible way. I wanna say thank you so much for listening in to the Essentially You podcast today. If there's somebody in your life that you know needs to hear this, it's such a broad conversation, but such an important conversation as well, I want you to send it on over to them. Either take a quick photo 
and shoot it on over via text message or DM them or even share this episode on social media. You know, I want us to be in a state of gratitude and I want us to be in a state of keeping a positive outlook, but also these are the types of initiatives and changes that we've got to make in order to ensure that women are taken care of properly. So if you want to share it on social media, I would love it. Hashtag me, hashtag hormone literacy and hormone CEO. And I just want to say thank you again so much for being here today. And what we have coming up is one of my dearest, dearest colleagues, Dr. Casey Means, who is about getting to the root cause of metabolic dysfunction. We're going to be talking about the top 10 worst foods for blood sugar, how blood sugar impacts women's hormones and metabolism, and so much more. Remember, she's a co-founder of Levels, the CGM technology company that I'm obsessed with. So I definitely want you to come on and check out that interview. It's going to be great. Thank you.